Welcome back to Cunningham's Law Review, where our goal is to listen to the top artists and songs of the last 100 years, starting in 1920, and working our way forward. Four days a week, we review what we hear and share the history of popular music with you, as we do. I'm Richie, and you're listening to Side A of episode 1921-3, where today we'll be listening to a group of true originators, the original Dixieland Jazz Band. We'll also be checking in on Ted Lewis for 1921 and hearing the finale of a Mozart symphony by new to Cunningham's conductor, Arturo Toscanini. Of the three names that we'll be hearing today, Toscanini is probably the most widely known to this day, and his story is so full of surprises in fighting fascism that I can't wait to share it with you. Let's start today's episode by taking a look at some of the new artists that we'll be listening to in today's music, including some of the first New Orleans jazz players, and Arturo Toscanini, who started his conducting career at the age of only 19. You've probably never heard of Papa Jack Lane, unless you're into jazz, or history, or jazz history, but he's a figure that would define the 20th century of music, and who would earn the nickname, the Father of White Jazz. Lane was a man who believed that music was a way to bring people together in a time when racism was trying to keep them apart. Growing up in New Orleans with its extraordinary diversity of both race and thought, Lane was a drummer who worked with the best musicians, no matter who they were. Segregationists worked hard to try and keep white and black people apart from each other, but it's reported that Jack Lane flouted that law where he could, and hired members of any race, including African Americans with lighter colored skin. Since if they were black performers, he would have been breaking the law. When Lane was asked about them, he would say that the black men were Cuban or Mexican and get right back into playing. Bringing together the different styles of so many cultures began to fuse many of the influences together, and jazz would start to form with Lane at the nexus of one of many epicenters of development. Now, to be clear, Lane wasn't a member of the original Dixieland jazz band. But all five of the members worked with him in New Orleans before leaving to bring their jazz to New York. The original Dixieland Jazz Band was actually the very first band to record a jazz song in 1917. And they had a big hit with 1918's Tiger Rag. And while that's not a 1921 song by any means, we've included it in the playlist here today because it's worth hearing for posterity's sake. It's also, to this day, LSU's pregame song. Arturo Toscanini, who was born in 1867 and would live until 1957, passing away just shy of 90 years old, would in his lifetime become the music director of the New York Philharmonic and the La Scala Theater in Italy, while becoming a household name as the director of the NBC Symphony Orchestra, which was broadcast into homes all across the U.S. for decades. In his younger days, Toscanini started out as a cellist, but due to a dispute between musicians and another conductor, Toscanini found himself asked to lead the orchestra in a performance of Verdi opera Ida at the very last minute. With striking intensity that he would later become well known for, he conducted his first opera from memory and off the top of his head, having perfectly memorized the music at the age of 19. From there, Italian fascism would impact Toscanini in his home country until he fled at the outset of World War II. When he was in charge of the La Scala Theater, the symphony who recorded the Mozart piece that we'll be listening to today, he refused to display Mussolini's photograph or play the fascist national anthem Giovanezza. He was ordered during a memorial performance for another composer to do so, but refused and was beaten for it in 1931. He is reported to have said, 
if I were capable of killing a man, I would kill Mussolini. He wouldn't return to Italy until after the war, when the La Scala Theater was repaired and reopened, and he conducted the opening concert for that reopening. Anyone who can conduct a symphony from memory, tell a fascist dictatorship to play their own anthem, and then take a beating for it, is extraordinarily courageous in my opinion, and that's who we'll be listening to today. In particular, we'll be listening to one of the first recordings that Toscanini and the La Scala Orchestra did with the Victor label in late 1920. In 1920-5, we talked about opus numbers, but since this is a Mozart piece, it instead has a Kirschel number. It's the fourth movement of Mozart's Symphony No. 39 in E-flat. K for Kirschel, 543. Now, since Ted Lewis is someone who we've already introduced in episode 1920-5, we don't really need to give his entire history here. However, there are three things to know about Ted Lewis from our last review. He was born in Circleville, Ohio in 1890, and he was one of the earliest jazz performers to gain popularity. His catchphrase was, is everybody happy? But his performances in 1920 left him with an average of 13.3, so the answer is a middling eh. His trilling clarinet would start him off on a path toward mastering the styles of many others and quickly incorporating them into his own repertoire. His band would quickly assimilate musical styles and make them into their own convincingly. Now that we've met all our artists, let's stop talking about the music and start listening. Normally, this is the part of the podcast where I tell you that if you're not listening on Spotify at this point, you really should be, but Spotify has changed how podcasts like Cunningham's Law Review operate so I no longer need to publish separate playlists to play music in our episodes. Through the wonders of modern technology, from now on you just need to push the start button at the start of the podcast episode, and you'll hear everything in a row without pressing another button. The episodes with built-in music are limited to Spotify, so if you're listening to this episode through a different service but still want to listen along to the music, we've created a playlist for this episode as well called Cunningham's Law Review 1921-3. That's on Spotify, but you can listen to it for free. You can also find a link to this episode on the Cunningham's Law Review subreddit at reddit.com slash r slash Cunningham's Law Review. We want to know what you think about our reviews and the music we're hearing, so make sure to join us on the subreddit, leave us an anchor voicemail, or hit us up on Twitter at Cunning Review. That's all for side A of episode 1921-3. We'll see you for the reviews after the songs on side B. Welcome back to Cunningham's Law Review, episode 1921-3. You're now listening to the B-side of the podcast, where we review each of the songs in today's music and talk more about the impact that these songs had. If you'd like to join the conversation, the Cunningham's Law Review subreddit will have a dedicated post for this episode at reddit.com slash r slash Cunningham's Law Review, and we'd love to hear from you through an anchor voicemail or on Twitter at Cunning Review. I'm Richie, your host, and I hope you enjoyed the music, or at least heard something new. Today we heard from Ted Lewis, who was known as Mr. Entertainment, but who sounded a bit lacking now that the original Dixieland jazz band has entered the chat. Also, we heard from Arturo Toscanini, the first musician we'll talk about today. Toscanini's submission for this year is Mozart's Symphony No. 39 in E-flat, and this is the finale portion of that symphony. 
If you've ever wondered what a conductor does in the orchestra, as you watch them appear to simply wave their hand to the beat and make sweeping hand motions at certain sections, it's a bit more complicated than that. But that's because most of the work that a conductor does isn't the work done in front of the crowd on the night of the performance. Prior to opening night, the conductor starts by picking what music will be played, he studies the written score closely, and then makes artistic interpretations based on their understanding of the intent of the musical piece. And that's important, because therein lies the artistic input that the conductor can have in making the piece come to life for their audience later. Toscanini was a renowned conductor, but one of the things that he was renowned for was sticking to the script and streamlining some of the other interpretation out of the pieces that he conducted. And that's what we have here in his conducting of the final movement of Mozart's Symphony 39. With a total score of 19 out of 25 points, Toscanini hits his high note in mastery where he earns a 5 through both the excellent performance of his La Scala Orchestra and in his conducting. As you would expect from a classical song, catchiness is not the focus, but there's nothing that turns you off from it, and so the piece receives a 3. Similarly, Toscanini's artistic statement was often that making an artistic statement instead of playing the song was indulgent and a negative, so in his faithful rendition of the piece, he doesn't innovate past a 3, but does receive a 4 in artistic statement and authenticity. Now we're going to talk about the original Dixieland Jazz Band, who we'll have to refer to as ODJB from here on out because we only have a certain amount of hard drive space to record this episode on. And they were advertised as being able to, quote, inject new life into a mummy and keep ordinary dancers on their feet for 24 hours. While this music was certainly going to be much more engaging than most of what vaudeville had been bringing to the table for so long, it's also said that the ODJB performed for King George V of England and that he was less than enthusiastic. But before we address whether or not they were as good as billed, we need to talk about authenticity. At Cunningham's When We Review Music for Authenticity, we have to ask ourselves if the music makes us feel like the people playing it are using their art to express something from within and something that they feel is important. The ODJB was trained by the father of white jazz, Papa Jack Lane, and they grew up professionally playing in New Orleans with members of all races. We have to ask ourselves, even though these musicians are white, their background is steeped in the environment where black artists like Jelly Roll Morton would have come to similar conclusions of expression. So were they not authentic in playing and popularizing it because of their race? Is jazz an inherently black property despite multitudes of contributors? That's an interesting question, and one informed by the fact that Jelly Roll Morton wasn't on a level playing field to compete with the ODJB due to racism. But at day's end, these questions are ethical ones as well as academic, and while we can address the academic portion through objective measurement, we must each answer the ethical questions subjectively and for ourselves. In our first song, Home Again Blues, which earns 16 points, the ODJB sound very busy but also supply an instantly recognizable sound of what can still be said is New Orleans jazz. There are seemingly tons of instruments going wild and somehow not interfering with each other, yet this is only a five-piece band. Later refinements to this style would clarify that sound, but for 1921, this makes a ton of music, and you could imagine people straying into a bar from off the street to hear this new sound. The band plays a bit fast, making it almost too busy and hectic to even listen to but this would have sounded absolutely different than anything most people had ever heard in 1921. 
the song earns a 16, surfing a high-crested 4 in authenticity, with 3s following through the remaining 4 categories. In a song good enough to name a hockey team after, the ODJB performed St. Louis Blues very well, earning a 19. This was a huge blues hit, and every jazz band who's been around for any time will eventually perform it, and so for this reason it's called the Jazzman's Hamlet. I really enjoyed the reimagining of this song, until the lyrical portion where the vocals were very weak in comparison to the playing. In their reimagining of the song, the ODJB does a fantastic job of adding not only new jazz solos into the mix, but also with the freight train rhythm that pulses and makes the song much more catchy than previous versions we've listened to. That earns it fours in catchiness and mastery. If the vocals weren't so jarring, it probably would have received a five in mastery, but instead all categories are fours with the exception of the authenticity score of three for playing a downtrodden blues song as a much more upbeat jazz dance number. In another jazz standard that we've heard from multiple artists on, Palestina is tuned up by the ODJB in a new jazz style, making for improved catchiness and avoiding some of the silly lyrical problems that the original has. If you recall from our previous episodes, the song is about a woman who wasn't much to look at, but who became the Queen of Palestine for playing her concertina so well. Getting rid of that nonsense and leaving the more intricate musical passages highlights their complexity nicely and makes space for added solos that punch up the song before launching into the final chorus. This is possibly the most well-composed jazz song so far and earns an AICMA score of 34443, totaling 18 of 25. Now we're going to move on to the best song from the ODJB of 1921, Royal Garden Blues, which scored a 20. When you first listen to this song, it doesn't sound like there's much going on, but there certainly are two interesting things. First, this is one of the first songs to be popular that was based off of a riff, which is a short, repeated musical phrase, and you hear it over and over traded between the instruments here. Riffs are extraordinarily common now, and that contribution earns an innovation score of 4, which it matches in all other categories. Second, there's a brief lyrical section, which is not awful, so that was nice, but one thing I heard in it was news to me. The singer refers to different instruments in the musical elements of jazz, one of which being a cornet playing with a mute. That's a surprise because one of the earliest uses of jazz muted horn is not supposed to be until 1923 with King Oliver's jazz band. But here we have proof that it was likely more well known before that, at least in New Orleans circles. If you know more about that, I'd love to hear about it on Twitter, Reddit, or in an anchor voicemail. In Jazz Me Blues, the next song, we get a really great feel for the style of ODJB as it emerges throughout all these songs with a busy, overlapping horn instrumentation over a driving piano rhythm, breaking every so often to feature a solo or lightly accompany an instrument while it struts its stuff a bit. The song is a bit less lively than some of the others and yet more noisy and less refined. The solos, however, make all the difference, and this song earns an 18 with 4s in authenticity, catchiness, and mastery, and 3s in innovation and artistic statement. In our last two songs, which share the same score totals of 17, removing the lyrics and remixing them into jazz hits is a big improvement. Margie, last reviewed when we talked about Eddie Cantor's version in 1921-2, was just another Girl I Love song, but in this version the horns do a great job subbing in for the lyrics. The tapping drums keep the rhythm moving in a fun rat-a-tat beat, while the horns dance and move around one another. Sweet Mama was last sung by Marion Harris when we reviewed her in our very first episode. 
For the same reasons, this song is improved by the jazz band fixing its lyrical deficiencies, and both songs score threes for authenticity, catchiness, and artistic statement, but fours in innovation and mastery. From the man they call the hit wonder himself, Ted Lewis delivers a fairly boring 13-point version of All By Myself. After hearing what jazz can sound like from the ODJB, returning back to the more plodding sound of Ted Lewis is a disappointment. Here the rhythm provides space for the horns to wander around in, but they don't do much with it. They just play a slightly jazzy sounding version and playing vocals through the lead. It's an average song generally and receives threes except for an innovation, where its lack thereof earns a two to match its artistic statement. This is a good example of when authenticity isn't there. Because the ODJB grew up in New Orleans, they grew up with Papa Jack Lane, but Ted Lewis didn't. He grew up in Ohio. He came to New York, he started hearing the new jazz sounds, and he was trying to make them his own, but he couldn't do it yet. He would be able to do it by 1925, but in these songs, you can kind of hear his struggle in figuring out what jazz is. Similarly, Ted Lewis's playing leaves a lot to be desired in terms of liveliness and suffers in its new comparison to the ODJB in secondhand rows. The banjo solo makes up for Lewis's clumsy clarinet in the quicker sections, but just barely since it's recorded so quietly, saving the mastery score from a 2 and maintaining 3s in all categories for a total score of 15. We'll be talking more about this song and the woman who made it famous, Fanny Bryce, in our next episode, so if you don't know the lyrics just yet, you'll get to hear those soon. Well, that's it for today's episode, but we can confidently say that the original Dixieland Jazz Band has entered the acoustic era in a major way. While they would be more or less gone from the music scene in just a few years, the impact they made while active was huge. We want to know what you think, whether or not you agree with us, because Cunningham's Law states that the best way to learn something on the internet isn't to ask a question, but to post the wrong answer somewhere. So make sure to find the Cunningham's Law subreddit where we'll have posted all our wrong answers, and we'll have a dedicated post for this episode at reddit.com slash r slash Cunningham's Law Review. We'd love to hear from you through an Anchor voicemail or on Twitter at Cunning Review. If you leave us an Anchor voicemail that we end up using on our show, we'll review an album of your choice in a special episode, even if it's your own band's. If you like what we're doing here, leave us a review on your favorite podcasting service and follow the podcast on Spotify. And if you don't like it, definitely don't mention that to anybody. Until next time, I've been your host, Richie, and you've been listening to Cunningham's Law Review. Our theme music is a difficult subject by The Insider, and nobody else works here.